Um, today is the uh, third of a series on the five precepts. Um, the five precepts are the heart of Buddhist ethics. And the third precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct and on the positive side to be considerate in intimate relationships. Uh, it was supposed to be taught by um, a good friend of mine, Art Jolly, who called in sick last night. Uh, so I was asked to fill in for him. Um, I was actually really looking forward to hearing him speak because um, uh, he's single and in the midst of dating. You know? <laughs> and so some of the precepts... <laughs> Uh, um, the precepts uh, just very briefly you know they're not based on morality on good and bad Um, they're based on the observation that some of our actions lead to happiness and freedom and some of our actions lead to suffering Um, the purpose of the precepts is long-term happiness Uh, they can be seen as training rules Um, and just to list them uh, we did the first two to abstain from killing uh, abstain from stealing the one today from sexual misconduct and uh, the one next week from lying and the last one from intoxicants that cloud the mind the primary imperative of the precepts is to do no harm and to act out of compassion. Those precepts are not meant to be a rigid ideal by which we live, uh, making us either narrow-minded or calloused, but they're guidelines to help us move our lives in the direction of greater happiness and freedom. Sexual energy is a very powerful force. It's why we're here, why we're alive, why there's six billion people on this planet. We can enjoy our sexual energy with great happiness and intimacy, or we can cause tremendous suffering for ourselves and others. The Buddha actually gave uh, very few guidelines on on this particular precept. Mostly he gave guidelines um, about who it was appropriate to have sex with. And... um, um, you know, such as uh, we weren't supposed to have sex with relatives, uh, with people who were married, engaged, um, children, animals, um, and also to refrain from violence and sex. Um, in ancient India, at the time that he taught those precepts, that was probably enough to cover most of the bases. Um, I'm sure it was hard to imagine at the time the level of sexual misconduct that we've been able to create in this world. Um, it was understood that if we take a vow of celibacy, you know, we, sh- you know, we, we follow it. And if we um, create a vow of monogamy and of marriage, um, that we, you know, we would keep it because otherwise it would be dishonest. The precept, but has also carried the additional implication that we should honor our sexual undertakings. In Buddhism, sex is not a sin. Any feelings about um, about any feelings of guilt about our sexuality are actually against the precepts, because the precepts say to do no harm. And guilt is, uh, causes us a very deep harm into our inner psyche. Many monks take vows of celibacy. Um, many of the monks I've spoken with, um, they believe that um, any sexual activities are a distraction from pursuing our freedom. Um, but lay Buddhist teachers, um, most of them feel otherwise. They acknowledge that the sexual energy is a very powerful force, uh, which needs to be understood and restrained, so that we use it with mi- mindfulness and with responsibility. There's um, a lot of different kinds of challenges in working with this precept, depending on our life situation. 
um, many issues can come up. Uh, you know, again, thinking of art, you know, it's, uh, it's been many years since I've had any of those concerns. Um, what are the concerns that people have when they date? Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, damage that can occur at those times. A lot of hurt and a lot of wounding that can happen. Um, honesty and communication are essential. Are we actually seeing the person in front of us? We can easily be blinded by our attraction to someone who's really beautiful looking and we're just so attracted to them. We just don't even see that we might not even like the person if we actually paid attention. We need to understand and communicate our expectations. Someone said, um, someone here, I can't remember who it was, said um, that expectation is premeditated resentment. Wow. Uh, we often bring a lot of old hurts and wounds into our, our relationships. And so it requires even more, more mindfulness, more paying attention, more reflection. An issue that um, is actually has become an issue today is that the issue of casual sex. Um, Sex with a stranger or casual acquaintance, acquaintance. Um, can this be skillful if both parties are honest and upfront? Parents with children, how many of you have um, either teenagers or college age uh, children? Well, it, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, those are issues that, you know, how do you communicate um, to, um, to children? Would, um, in today's culture, where hookups um, and casual sex are, are the norm in many areas, how do you communicate that the value of um, intimacy and connection in a relationship? Um, a friend was telling me that, that he was disturbed because his son was... Um, uh, you know, he really believed that sex was for fun and he just wanted to have as much fun as possible. And, you know, he's in college and that's what he's into, you know. And he was like really trying hard to convince him, you know, of the value of long-term relationships, you know. And how do we hold that? Um, in Buddhism, we actually don't necessarily hold it in any particular way. There's no right or wrong. There's no rule about it. There's no, um, uh, you know, we have to look at the situation as it is. Is it harming anybody? Some people go into this uh, kind of very casual sex um, and they act like it's okay. You know, it's like, they, but they really underneath it, they go, well, I'm really hoping that they'll like me so much that it won't be casual sex. You know, so there's like all these intertwining um, expectations. And so sometimes it may not be as simple and as fun um, when you get different people with different psyches involved. But are we judgmental when we see that? Are we able to just hold that as just a possibility of, uh, of how some humans live their lives? Is... is um, is wanting to have casual sex any different than being seduced by any other kind of desire? Such as wanting a new car or wanting to, you hear a song on the radio and wanting that one and then the next one and the next one. Uh, is there any difference in the quality of that desire? But the consequences can be different. The feeling of loneliness is universal in our society. Some people have sex because they're lonely. A one-night stand can actually deepen our sense of loneliness because we touch somebody with our bodies, but that's it, and then it's over. And it actually deepens that sense of, um, of being alone. The Vietnamese monk and Buddhist teacher uh, Thich Nhat Hanh he says that um, 
A sexual relationship is an act of communion between body and spirit. That it's a very important encounter and shouldn't be done casually. He believes that to be touched casually or carelessly without tenderness is actually hurtful to us. Each of us have private areas that we would only share with someone we love or trust. We don't open our hearts and show it to just anyone. He says that touching another person without a deep sense of caring causes harm. That someone who touches us with respect, tenderness, and utmost care is offering us deep communication, deep communion. People in long-term relationships may have other challenges. Maintaining honesty and intimacy. Um, Sexual needs can change as people change. And they don't always coincide. How is intimacy and care maintained without resentment when they don't coincide? If our sexual desires um, aren't met, can we let go? Can we stay kind and compassionate if our partner's um, not matching us? Can we look at our clinging of how we think things should be? For many people, their sexuality is really wrapped up into their self-worth. If their partner doesn't want to have sex or as frequently, uh, it's easy to project that they're no longer loved. They're no longer worthwhile. People have a much easier time letting go of their sexual demands if their partner is sick than if their partner isn't interested. And some couples, uh, some people fantasize other people while they're having sex. Is that, is that okay? Is that uh, skillful? Does it bring us happiness? Does it cause suffering? Some people have split up because a partner spent hours daily having cyber sex or sex chat, for those of you who are not familiar with it. Uh, on the computer, there's been uh, a, quite a high incidence of people getting really hooked onto, um, uh, you know, having these long-term cyber sex relationships with other people who they've never met. Um, is this an issue of time instead of fidelity? Some people don't think, well, that's not cheating. You know, I'm not really doing anything. It's just fantasy. But if uh, someone's spending three or four hours a day, you know, after work, hanging out, on, you know, with this sexual relationship, sexual fantasy, they don't have the time to invest and to give to their partner. All love may begin by being passionate. But in the process of living together, um, our love changes. We learn to practice love so that selfishness, the tendency to possess, diminishes. And understanding and gratitude settle in. Little by little, and to love, love becomes a lot more nourishing and protecting. In any relationship, there may be both a possessive love and an altruistic love. It may be quite a mix of those things. Uh, it could be 90% of possessive love and attached love, uh, 3% altruistic, you know, 2% gratitude. Practicing this precept in a long-term relationship is to look deeply into the nature of our love and find out not to judge ourselves for being needy, for being insecure, for being possessive, but to begin to understand how those qualities hurt us and to begin to let them go. Our long-term happiness depends on our ability to let go. One of the factors I like to look at is the balance in our lives. Um, maybe having multiple sexual partners is not ethically wrong, but is that a balanced way for us to live our lives? Um, not for everybody to live our lives, their lives, but for each individual one of us. How much time do we have in a day? If we want to have time to work, time to meditate, to exercise, for close friends, 
um, we don't want to overcrowd our lives. How many people can we be close and intimate with? Um, another thing, <clears throat> excuse me. Another thing that people do that um, that sometimes we can question is flirting. Is uh, flirting harmless? Biologically, the primary purpose of flirting is to mate. It's an instinctive ritual across all cultures. Um, but is it appropriate if we don't want to mate with someone? A lot of people just have this habit of flirting all the time. They flirt with anybody of the opposite sex or if they're gay of the same sex. Um, and it's kind of a way of being. Every time they meet someone, there's like this kind of sexual uh, type of energy that's being put out there. Is that, is that harmful? Is that a harmful energy? Is it such a deep part of somebody's habits that, that uh, it's not even seen? Is it harmful to flirt with someone else's spouse? How about it in the workplace? Is there a place for that kind of sexuality in the workplace? My, um, my husband and I took care of his mother um, the last year of her life. She was in her 80s. And um, it, it all, I always remember, you know, she, had a, she, she was in her house, you know, and she had a heart attack. And, um, you know, we called the paramedics. And, you know, the thing she was really concerned about was that we got her a comb to comb her hair. And when the four men arrived, you know, to put her on the gurney, she started flirting with them. Here, here she was with, you know, chest pain, jaw pain, and, um, you know, and just flirting. You know, it was such a lifetime habit. You know, she was just saying how attractive they were. And, oh, she'd only known they were so attractive, she would have called sooner. And, <laughs> and, um, so so flirting you know flirting can be such a deep habit that it loses its connection with the mating ritual the flirting in the workplace can turn into sexual harassment it involves the taking the not given it's based on a deep seated presumption and delusion usually in male conditioning about the constant sexual availability of women and in the workplace where we don't have the power to you know tell you know if it's a superior doing it if it's uh, you know a co-worker that we just don't want to create you know difficult energy with you know it can be a very oppressive environment In Buddhism, our skillful actions are grounded in three intentions. Kindness, compassion, and renunciation, or letting go. Can we approach intimacy, keeping those intentions close to us? There's been a lot of scandals from misuse of sexual energy. In particular, power imbalance with teachers having sex with students, psychotherapists with their patients, bosses with their employees. All those have the potential of doing harm. What's at play here is unrestrained craving, following our desires regardless of cost. Pornography has a huge impact in the modern world. 12% of all the websites out there are pornography on the internet. 25% of all search engine requests are pornography. 8% of all emails are pornography. In fact, on average, every single person, if you average it, gets four and a half pornographic emails per day. 
pornography can create a hostile and unsafe environment for people. Some pornography um, can promote violence and unskillful mind states, including delusions about the nature of women and men and what they want. Both sexes suffer harm. Uh, many people differentiate between pornography and erotica, between sexually explicit material that treats people as objects for exploitation and consumption, which is pornography, and erotica, where intimacy is valued, where sexuality is seen in people that are human just like we are. I think it's important to give attention to our intimate relationships, to reflect on them. Do we have unseen expectations? Are we honest, transparent? Are we willing to work on communication? Sometimes we're not clear about what our expectations are until they're not met. In the news this week, um, there was a story um, that said that 51% of women now are living without a spouse. Um, In 1950, it was 35%. Um, It's interesting. No one seemed to mention that what happened to the men that are living, you know, that that's not an issue. They're living without a spouse, too. Um, So since women don't need men to survive in the modern world, uh, at least financially, are there other models for sexual relationships that are skillful? I don't think that 51% of the women on the, in, this, uh, in the U.S. are celibate. So what are the options, you know, for intimacy for people who are not in long-term relationships? And one of the terms that I've heard is uh, friends with benefits. So people who don't want to, you know, commit but they, but they just have sex as friends. Can someone have sex with a friend long term and one person not get more attached than the other? So um, can it be done without harming anyone? In some ways, sexual desire is like any other desire. It's hardwired in us. We want pleasure. Can we hold our sexual desires with enough spaciousness to be able to act wisely when they arise? Or are we so obsessed with getting our desires fulfilled that we lose sight of our wisdom? Do we overindulge our desires? Do we feel drained? Do we feel drained by our sexuality instead of nourished? In Asian health and spiritual practices, being moderate with our sexual energy is considered essential for physical and spiritual well-being. There's the concept of channeling the sexual energy to deepen our meditation and creativity. In Chinese medicine, when you want to have strong concentration and a strong spirit, you're advised to refrain from having sex or overeating. Temporary periods of celibacy can be helpful ways to learn about our sexual energy. When we go on meditation retreats, we agree to abstain from sex, including uh, abstain from masturbation. Depending on the level of our sex drive, this can be quite challenging when we go on long retreats that might last weeks or months. But it's an amazing time to be able to really watch uh, what our sex drive does. Uh, sex in some ways can be like eating. When, when we eat a moderate, delicious meal, it's enjoyable and we feel good afterwards. But eating too much leaves us exhausted and unhappy. We can overindulge our sexuality in the same way. Another problem that can arise with our sexuality is love sickness, which until very recent years is actually considered a form of mental illness. 
that uh, a mental illness that was brought about by the intense changes in the body associated by falling in love. People can actually make themselves deathly ill with their attachment to someone they desire. Love sickness has actually been a fatal condition. Today, most of, mostly, we have romanticized this into all these uh, songs. Um, so many popular songs, they all basically have the same lyric, I can't live without you. But even though love, love sickness is not currently a diagnosis, many people who seek, who seek psychological help actually come because they can't cope with the changes that they experience, either from the intensity of falling in love or from having unrequited love. The symptoms of love sickness include anxiety, mania, elevated moods, inability to sleep, lack of appetite, inflated self-esteem, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, such as constantly checking emails to see if you got an email from them or, or voicemail or uh, excessive gift giving. Have any of you ever done that or known someone who's done that? But what makes us sick? It's attachment. Even in the more enjoyable side of this attachment, this kind of love is like a drug. It makes us feel wonderful, but once we're addicted, we can't have peace, we can't work or sleep. We only think of the object of our love. We want to possess the other person. We want the object of our love to be entirely ours. And if we enter into the relationship, the attachment can get worse. Then you're afraid of losing them. And it can lead to anxiety and jealousy. Freedom is the ultimate promise of Buddhist practice. Freedom means letting go of the obsessions, compulsions, and inhibitions of our psychological conditioning. It can take either the form of restraint, such as the ability to say no to compulsions, or it can take the form of saying yes to things that override our habits and fears and prejudices. Sometimes in our culture, sexuality is mixed with deep social prejudices. Social scientists have said that many of the typical rules against different sexual practices are really based on social engineering by society uh, to guarantee the survival of the tribe for the protection of baby-making that all the rules that, that um, different groups make about uh, against, uh, that religions make or the state makes against uh, homosexuality, against masturbation, um, against cross-dressing, against contraception, against fellatio, cunnilingus, all those laws and rules are made to protect the baby-making so that the society can survive and you know, and, and reproduce. As Buddhism is not concerned with baby making, it doesn't make any of these rules. It doesn't buy into any of it. Um, though culturally, some Buddhist countries have some of the same prejudices, but none of them come from the actual religion itself. A social engineering religion or state will tend to create laws that criminalize, stigmatize, and pathologize non-procreative sex. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and even though we think those, um, those attitudes may not affect us, that we're more forward-thinking than that, um, it's amazing how deeply these attitudes can affect everyone. 
And a really um, good example recently in the scientific community um, really surprised me. Uh, they just opened an exhibit in, um, in Oslo, in Norway, um, a museum on gay animals. And, um, and they show that over 1,500 species exhibit homosexual behavior. Any idea that homosexuality is a human thing it was, is quickly disposed of. At the beginning of the exhibit, we were greeted by a pair of swans, which swans are kind of the symbol of romantic love. And it just happens that there are two, two female swans and that one out of every five swan pairs are, are of the same sex. Um, but what's really interesting about this is that until I think about seven years ago, um, researchers ignored the information about homosexuality because they were, it was there in their records, it's still there from way back, but they didn't want to bring attention to it, so they would couch it in some really bizarre terminology because they were afraid of losing their funding. They're afraid of being ridiculed, of losing their status. They even, they would describe two animals of the same sex as frolicking, frolicking with each other as competition, a form of greeting, ritualized combat, even when we were talking about full anal intercourse with ejaculation. So Buddhism is a universal religion, as I said, with no baby-making agenda, so much so that it doesn't even have a marriage service. Marriage is a civil matter in Buddhist countries. The civil authorities provide an official celebration, um, and afterwards the, the couple can go to a monk where they may get a blessing, where it's usually uh, you know, some words of advice. Ajahn Chah, the great Buddhist meditation master in Thailand, he had a stream of newlyweds that would come to his monastery on a regular basis just for this purpose. He would tell them, you have given your hand in marriage. Your hand has five fingers. Think of them as the five precepts. Practice the precepts in your marriage and you will have a happy one. That's all you need. The Buddha never said anything against non-procreative sex, but he inspired thousands to ordain into celibate monasticism and so leave the baby-making behind altogether and to focus their lives on spiritual pursuits. Many people who have been on the path for a long time have asked the question, do we need to give up our sexuality and to focus our lives on spiritual purposes? to be able to get free, to be able to uh, wake up. In thinking about this question, one might want to consider that at the time of the Buddha, at the time there was no birth control, uh, non-celibates ended up with many children to feed, to clothe, to house, and so had little freedom or time for spiritual pursuits. Celibacy made a practical sense for many people who had a spiritual urge. Today in developed countries, it's actually quite different. Uh, Contraception's available. We are capable of creating lives that do have enough time to pursue a meditative practice and still be involved in the world. Even though most people don't do that, even if they have a spiritual urge, we still find that we make our lives a little too busy. Sex is a purely impersonal force. In Buddhist practice, sexual desire is just one expression of the craving which brings dukkha or suffering to our lives. The aim of practice is to bring about the cessation of craving. And from this point of view, there is no other reason for sexual restraint than this. A great deal of our sexual energy can be channeled or sublimated into other things, such as art or music, 
intense religious faith, sports. Those are all skillful means of dealing with uh, what might be excess sexual energy. Those who have um, experienced the meditative absorptions called the jhanas may find an emotional outlet which is even more enjoyable than sex. But neither acting out our cravings, repressing them, or sublimating them gives us any kind of freedom. Which brings us back to the practice of insight. Insight which asks us to explore the real nature of craving by deeply understanding the inherent suffering caused by craving, realization of freedom can be found. Practice skillfully in the spirit of the precepts or sexual relationships can bring us a lot of happiness. As one meditation teacher uh, sums up, There's nothing wrong with dancing lightly with your desires, so long as both can hear the music and all hearts are open. It's the attachment in our relationships that causes our suffering. But having relationships without the taint of attachment is extremely difficult. I was told that the Dalai Lama said this, He said that while it's theoretically possible to have sex without forming attachment, it would require so much equanimity that the capable individual would also have no problem eating dog poop in place of chocolate cake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) on that note, uh, <laughs> we have a little time for questions um, or comments. So I know that most uh, churches are uh, very much against divorce. Does Buddhism have a, a similar sentiment? No, Buddhism doesn't say anything about it. It, it um, um, you know, basically we want to look at our relationships, you know, and if the relationship is causing suffering long term, and um, you know, if an abuse, a relationship is abusive, um, a relationship is unhealthy for both people. You know, there's uh, Buddhism wouldn't say anything about you know what to do. Um, let me ask a couple of things. You know, does anybody? Um, I'm curious what you think about flirting. Does, do you think flirting is harmless? It depends on your intent. So, so if your intent is what? The fun Define flirting. Go ahead, define flirting. <laughs> how do you view how do you view what flirting is? Uh, I mean, beyond, so there's a friendly a base friendliness. Okay, mm-hmm. that would be there. But I guess there would be the a nuanced possibility of something else. And it's a form of communication too. Mm-hmm. As long as one has a pulse, there might be. Um, there's, you know, there is a sexual energy that happens, mm-hmm. and to flirt possibly is to be in touch with that without without you having to. Um, be so involved and engrossed with it. It depends on attachment and intent and how much you're keen to that or where that need comes from, if it's conscious or unconscious. That's the example of I don't know who 
So can it be play? It's really the question. Can flirting be play? Yeah. Or is or is there something more subtle going on? Um, you know, sometimes you know I uh, I know that women you know we've been taught to uh, value our physical appearance a lot, so that that's the only way we know how to communicate. A lot of women, you know, so that's their primary mode of communicating. Aren't I beautiful? Aren't I attractive? Um, and so sometimes, even though it may seem like this really harmless flirting, might it be that you're actually identifying with, you know, this is where my value is. Um, there's also like a lot of sometimes, you know, um, I know some people flirt by uh, doing a lot of touching. And the touching isn't, um, like I have a really good male friend, you know, and, and it's, it's like a, this, he's just so non-sexual. You know, he can put his feet on my lap and there's just like nothing, nothing there. It's just we're friends, we're buddies, you know, and um, that we're affectionate, you know. But then somebody else can just touch me and, you know, it's in, but it has a sexual connotation. What does that mean? What's the communication going on in those situations? You know, is that an honest communication? Is that, or is, or is that a, you know, or just a habit of being sexual in the world all the time? What is that? What does that mean, you know, for us to do that? With the flirter and the flirty, how much of it is in each other's minds, too? It's like that person may be putting and you may be taking something entirely beyond what it is mm-hmm. or, or not. Yeah, I'm sure there's tons of projection all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really about, I mean, I'm bringing it up because if it's something we do, um, you know, it's something that it's really worth looking at. And if it's something we experience, you know, and react to, you know, because I've reacted to that, you know, when I've, you know, when I've seen that, you know, when I've, you know, seen somebody, um, you know, flirting with my husband or something, you know, it's like, you know, it's, you know, just felt a little odd, you know, and, uh, yeah, so how does that feel, you know, so it's just bringing those things to mind, but that is the sexual energy at play. I, I just think that primarily that, uh, the main thing is, if I'm flirting, is to be mindful. Why? What am I trying to project? Is it harmful? Because I think there's a whole lot of different things that could be going on. Um, for flirtation, you might be doing it sexually. You might be doing it for play. You might, you know. And I think it's just that bringing that mindfulness. Is this just a habit and inappropriate in this case? Or um, is it? Appropriate. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, there's a, an aspect of this that hasn't really been addressed, or at least directly, in the, it's the physiological nature of what's going on. That sexual attraction and stuff is, is very often, you know, it's a function of the level of hormones that are going on. <coughs> In your body, and it, it, I think in a great degree, it acts as an intoxicant to the extent that it can change or cloud your judgment. So that you know, if you happen to be particularly um, uh, have, have a lot of hormones going on or whatever, you will act and think a way that could be very different than if you were in less excited a condition. So I think that um, that aspect of sexual attraction um, and the whole issue of, of, of sexual interaction between people is very different than many of the other uh, things that you know are dealt with in the, in the, in the, in the precepts mm-hmm. because it's it sort of sneaks up on you, or, or, or in, in, in a sense that you, you don't even see it. Yeah. Like an unbelievable yeah. toxic. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. In, in many of the other cravings that you know are spoken about, you know, for money, power, you know, material objects or whatever, are very largely an intellectual activity. 
and you can address them sort of dispassionately just with as, as an intellectual exercise. Whereas this, the, this matters of a sexual nature very often have a very large physiological component that mm-hmm. if you're not really paying close attention to, you'll be oblivious to, and it will be running you. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that that's, that's a very difficult aspect of it to get a hold of and, mm-hmm. and be aware of yeah. and mindful of. You know, there was um, a study I was reading um, about voles, you know, they're field mice. And um, it's sort of interesting because there are two related types of field mice. There's the um, prairie, prairie ones and the, um, oh gosh, uh, Montana, Montana, I think they're called. It doesn't matter. But the prairie ones are form um, pairs and they bond for life. And the other ones don't. And yet they're very, very closely related. And what they found was that the prairie ones, the prairie voles, um, have very high levels of oxytocin and vasopressin, uh, these hormones in the brain. And depending on the amount of those hormones they have, how much, how faithful they are. So, um, you know, so there's a range. So some of the prairie ones, they all have that. Um, you know, are, are, are much more faithful and some are a little bit less. But um, they found that if they just inject the ones that aren't faithful with a little more oxytocin and vasopressin, there they go. They're, they're faithful. Uh, so we, we have, um, we're full of vasopressin and oxytocin. <laughs> and obviously some of us more than others. <laughs> So that is what you're alluding to. You know, that's that's exactly um, what it is. You know, we are hardwired to be attracted to people, and 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 that that it's that attraction can vary in intensity depending on our own biology, and that can vary quite a bit. Um, another study that was done. Um, this I'm trying to think of her name, Helen Fisher, I think. Uh, she wrote a book on. Um, on the biology of love. And she said that there's um, three different stages that we go through. And that the first one is that initial, what we call lust. That's what you're describing, that initial attraction. Like you don't even know the person, but you want them. You know, then the next stage is romantic love. That's where you just really, you know, you go for it. You fall in love. And the third stage is the long-term love and commitment that develops. Um, in a long-term relationship. And that all those three types of love are completely different chemical circuits. And the problem that that can cause is that you actually could experience all three kinds of love at the same time with three different people. So that's why the the whole concept of monogamy um, is so difficult for people. Uh, there's a lot of biology that makes it a little bit challenging. And again, people have, the chemistry in people really varies uh, between people that have high levels of oxytocin and vasopressin and low levels. Um, they said that 3% of all mammals um, are monogamous. So... Um, so before I, one, one other one other question I'd like to ask of you, and that's um, you know I brought up the issue of pornography, which is uh, such a major driving force in this country, such a, a huge industry, and um, and do you do you see any place for pornography in skillful living? Uh, or in erotica. Do you have any feelings about that? About the difference between the two? About um, whether it's skillful or not? Or maybe you don't want to reveal that. (laughs) I think... uh, a lot of pornography is misleading. 
and that, that it can hone people's taste in a really unrealistic manner. It's like, what, what do you expect? It's, it's, it's if you're, if you're um, training yourself to respond to certain stimuli, and those stimuli aren't in, in the world, you're, you're sort of balancing yourself, you're unbalancing yourself. And it reminds me of, there's a Kurt Vonnegut story where um, a man has a statue of this goddess in his garden, and the goddess has six breasts. And when his, his wife has a, a, has a boy child, he gets rid of the statue because he doesn't want the child to be disappointed. <laughs> Any other thoughts or comments? I guess what... I think about it is just the um, um, how pornography really gives the wrong impression, you know, what, where men start looking at women as sex objects or vice versa, and then uh, I still think it's ridiculous that the things that women do to their bodies. Um, it, trying to fulfill some, you know, male fantasy about the way a woman should look. And I think, you know, a lot of this uh, emphasis on sex and plays into all that. And, and it's just all very artificial. Thank you. Have any of you um, asked yourselves about the possibility of giving up sex for um, a monastic lifestyle? for spiritual reasons. Have any of you uh, struggled with that idea? Or maybe if you had, you'd be at a monastery right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much.